Hello again, everyone. This is Noah and John. We are from Urban Digs. We are talking Manhattan, and we're back, Johnny. We're, we're back. back. We're back. We got a good one. Uh, we're, we're going into the lending arena, and I just want to want to give a shout out to Lisa Masonette of Sotheby's. Um, she had a she had me and and Melissa Cohn, who I I known her from 2007, 2008, back in those days as well. We used to do conferences together and stuff like that. And I haven't spoken to you, Melissa, in a long, long time. And that was the first time we got back together in, in, in a while on the same interview. And I forgot how amazing you are. So I just wanted to um, basically piggyback off Lisa's interview and convey your message to um, my audience, which is very similar, but different, um, different than Lisa's. And here we are. So Melissa Cohn from Family First Funding, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, totally. So listen, let's just uh, start out. We got agents here. Um, they got buyers. They got sellers. Uh, they're, they're wondering what's going on in the lending element and how that relates to the COVID world in Manhattan real estate. Um, let's start high level with appraisals. What's going on? Everyone's talking about price action. We're waiting for those deals to come through. What's happening with appraisals and when do you expect these deals to start hitting? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that we really have had very little volume over the course of the past, past three months. So anyone who's purchasing today is not likely to have an appraisal issue because appraisals are based on comparable sales that have closed ideally in the past six to 12 months. Um, so the expectation is, yes, that values in New York City will fall. But anyone who is signing a contract today to put, close and purchase in, say, the next 60 to 90 days shouldn't really have an appraisal valuation issue. The big question has been, especially with the pandemic, well, what about getting an appraiser into that property? There have been many buildings that have not allowed appraisers or anyone into the buildings for a period of time. But as New York City is starting to open up again, the expectation is, is that appraisers will be able to get back into the apartments and be able to do a full interior inspection. Right. So, so looking forward, like, I don't know, late summer, early fall, when COVID deals do start coming through, I mean, do you have any expectation on, on what's going to happen with those appraisals? Are they going to shift to a declining market and have to start lowering or, or is that something they're already taking into account now? Well, I think that New York City has sort of been in a declining market over the softly and slowly over the course of the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, and that we've seen the price reductions already in sort of the high end of the marketplace. Um, people who are looking to purchase their first apartments, one bedrooms, smaller apartments, say under a million dollars, I think that's where we're going to see the greatest demand. And I think that's where we will see the least amount of uh, depression in terms of prices. Um, but anything over, call it a million and a half dollars and above, um, yeah, I think we will certainly see that prices are going to fall as many people are starting to flee the city, at least for this moment in time. Um, and we've got more sellers than buyers. And this is probably especially so in the new development space. Right. And what about refis, refi appraisals? Um, well, people always think their properties are worth more than they really are. So <laughs> refi appraisals have always been an issue. Um, right. But, you know, they're experiencing the same thing. We haven't seen closed sales at the lower price point. So for the moment, we're okay. In three to six months, it's going to be an issue. We'll be in a different market. Right. So for now, we're in COVID. And uh, because we're in COVID, uh, the government's doing extraordinary things, including um, intervening in the mortgage markets and, and uh, I guess, uh, the whole forbearance thing um, for both commercial and retail and residential. Um, focusing on residential forbearance levels, how does that 
um, affect lenders and their willingness uh, and their standards for lending. The forbearance is a big issue. You know, it's very important to note that almost 10% of this country is in forbearance on their mortgages. Um, and that affects not only people's ability to get mortgages, but it will also affect rates, which we can talk about in a moment. But if you have a buyer who is in forbearance, they will have a hard time getting a new mortgage unless they take themselves out of forbearance and make themselves current. If you have someone who's looking to refinance, the basic rule if you are in forbearance today is that if you can get yourself caught up and make yourself current on all your mortgage payments and show that you've made at least three current mortgage payments, then you're good to go with a new mortgage. Um, I can say for buyers in the New York City marketplace that I have seen people who have put themselves into forbearance who didn't really need to be in forbearance and that those people when they come to look for a new mortgage for a new property, banks are going to say, why did you go into forbearance if you've still been making your salary, you've still been earning your income? Um, so you really need to be aware of what your buyer's situation is with regards to are they in forbearance or not. Um, the good news is that forbearance will go away shortly. I believe that in New York, the ability to go into forbearance only goes through next month. And we will then come to the tail end of it where everyone will be forced to catch up um, and hopefully we'll put forbearance behind us. Forbearance also, as it relates to interest rates, remember if people aren't making their mortgage payments, then servicers don't have money to pay their bondholders. And this right. is especially impacted people who are looking to take a mortgage that's a jumbo mortgage. Uh, the conforming loan amounts under the 510,000, those rates are still great. You can get a 30-year fixed at two and seven eighths with no points. Um, in the jumbo world, mortgages used to be tied to the 10-year treasury. And then when the pandemic hit, there was a dislocation from the 10-year treasury because of this issue with forbearance and with bondholders not being able to uh, get money to make their payments. So Mortgage rates, and especially in the jumbo space, are actually higher than they should be, probably anywhere up to a half a percent higher. So once we come to the end of forbearance and we come to the end of a point where banks can begin to foreclose again and where people can evict uh, tenants who are not paying, then we'll see mortgage rates settle back down. Gotcha. Could I just uh, shift the topic? I'm just curious, if, um, you know, when you look at the sort of the self-employed, the foreign investor sector, the second homes, What's, what's the lending capacity for these guys look like? And uh, what are the standards right now compared to where they were a year ago? Um, well, let's start with the simple one, which is financing for foreigners. Mm -hmm. Because of all of the travel restrictions, there are a number of lenders who have actually suspended their programs for financing for foreigners. There still are banks that are out there financing for foreigners, but those banks are looking for bigger down payments, uh, generally getting no more than 50 to 60% financing today. You can still do it, just much more limited. For people who are self-employed, that's a great question. First of all, the IRS has said that we don't have to file our taxes until July. So many people have not filed their 2019 tax return yet, and here we are in the middle of 2020. Um, so banks are relying upon income from 2017 and 2018 to qualify. You know, that can be a double-edged sword, and banks haven't really change their underwriting guidelines for self-employed other than to say that even if you qualify based on your most recent tax return, you need to show that you're still earning income. 
So banks are asking for self-employed people to provide profit and loss statements and copies of bank statements for the past couple of months showing that they're still depositing money and still earning enough income to qualify. Now, obviously, we have a lot of self-employed people in industries that have been shut down because of the pandemic. Um, and the thought is, is that once people can get back to work and can show that they have a couple of months worth of income that was sufficient to meet financing needs and was comparable to historical income, that they'll be able to get financing again. But banks are also looking at to see whether self-employed people have taken the PPP money. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if in, you a in a negative way, in, 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 in essentially, yes, if you need federal money, that means you don't, you're not making enough money on your own. And then how could you afford to get a mortgage? Um, I actually had one person who asked if they could use their PPP money as part of a down payment for a purchase. And the answer is a big no. Um, you know, PPP money is meant to help businesses and self-employed people stay afloat during the pandemic. It's not meant to be an aid in helping someone get a mortgage. Right. Right. So let me ask you a question. Um, you mentioned earlier about pandemic pricing. Um, what, do, what do you mean about pandemic pricing? Could you explain that? Well, because this is really, and once again, this is really in the jumbo marketplace. Um, if banks are not getting mortgage payments on the loans that they're servicing, and if bondholders are not getting paid, that means there's less cash in the mortgage system. And then because of this liquidity uh, drying up, uh, there's less money out there for banks to make mortgages. And as a result, banks can add a premium to the rates that they charge. Um, if you want to take a mortgage here, my rate's a half a percent higher if you're willing to pay it, great. Um, if not, you know, there's so much demand right now for mortgages with rates as low as they are um, that banks are just effectively saying this is our cost of doing business today. It's also a greater, let's call it risk pricing. Yeah. If you were to make a mortgage to someone today, theoretically, if they were to close next week, they could go into forbearance the following month. Right. Um, banks want to make mortgages for people that are going to close and and make their monthly payments. And because there are so many people that have gone into forbearance, banks are, are more hesitant and once again, charging the premium. We've seen banks, for example, with pandemic pricing, a lot of banks have suspended their interest only financing options. Um, their banks are demanding bigger down payments, right. um, especially on the larger mortgages. Um, if you're looking to borrow more than, say, $5 million, a lot of banks are looking for people to make 40% down payments when three months ago they could have made a 20% down payment. Wow. Um, so this pandemic has uh, impacted pricing and guidelines and, and pretty much everything that we do. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to note that, you know, here we are sort of the beginning of a very late spring selling season, we hope. Um, the lots of pent up demand and mm -hmm. mortgage rates are very, very disparate from bank to bank. Um, you'll find banks that will offer you a 30 year fixed in the high twos and others are offering you a 30 year fixed in the fours. Um, so it's important that you shop around. Banks are also, the banks are more discriminating too. You know, banks are looking for higher credit scores today. Um, they're looking for more robust reserves. So um, it used to be that a bank would allow you to take your retirement assets and use that for your post-closing liquidity. Banks today are saying, no, we want to see that you have some of your reserves in cash and not in retirement assets. Mm -hmm. um, 
generally, you know, banks are more conservative and really want to make sure the people that are buying today will be able to afford to make their monthly payments in the months and the years to come. Yeah, you know, I mean, and in, in, I try to get, get a little macro here and I try to sneak this in because in deflationary times, banks contract. They contract and they did this in 2009, you know, so, so, so good companies may not get that loan. You know, that's, that's kind of like the self-feeding um, part of this cycle. It kind of feeds on itself because it's not, you, you can't get those loans so easily, you know? No, and, and you also have to deal with the fact with that we have this perception that real estate prices are going to drop. I mean, we don't have any, obviously it hasn't happened yet. Everyone's sort of right. waiting for that shoe to drop, mm -hmm. but that's made banks more nervous. And that's, you know, that's part of the psychology behind looking for bigger down payments. I mean, look at all the banks that are no longer offering home equity loans because they're afraid that people's equity in their homes is going to be diminished yeah. um, and no one wants to be upside down. Yeah. And they want more, they want more skin in the game for the consumers. Right. Absolutely. And and Melissa, you mentioned some of these higher price points and a lot of the higher price points are heavily influenced by some of the new developments out there. And I'm curious how the banks are looking at uh, the risk uh, in the new dev sector uh, since, you're, since you're looking at sort of, in many times, um, spec projects, uh, high price points, these sort of things. Um, you know, new development has really been, I would say, especially hard hit by the pandemic. Um, and part of it has to do with the fact that there's been just, a, there's such a huge supply of new condominiums that are available for sale. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the average building in New York City, again, these are buildings that have been marketed for a year, for two or more, they're only between 30 and 40% sold. You know, Fannie Mae's general guideline is that they don't want to finance in a building unless that building is 50% sold. And a lot of the big players, um, I won't mention names, um, who have been in the marketplace, who've been our typical go-to lenders for new development are actually pulling out of the new development space, figuring that they already have too much on their books and the, the risk is too great. Um, for me, it's a great opportunity because there are a number of um, portfolio lenders, regional savings and loans, non-bank mortgage banks um, that are happy to step into the space I find that the most interesting conversation I have on a daily basis as I represent a number of condominiums in the city is that you're not necessarily going to get that best rate if you're purchasing in a new development project. Yeah. And people are going to need to uh, adjust um, expectations, especially for their buyers, that if you're going to buy in a building and that building is 30% sold, you're not going to get that 2 and 7 eighths percent 30-year fix that's available for a bank for a building that's 50% sold, that rate may be three and a half percent. It may be you have to take an adjustable and not get a fixed rate loan at all, especially in these new conversion buildings. Um, so new development, you know, we really need to sort of mid to have a major adjustment in terms of what the expectations are in terms of getting financing for these buildings. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, one, of the, one of the things we've talked about before uh, regarding the pandemic is there's a lot of things that are sort of new to the situation. And we feel like not all of them are going to stick, but certainly some things are going to stick. Um, virtual tours perhaps might become far more accepted in terms of showing properties. But you know, you just mentioned something which I'd like to dig into a little bit, which is sort of a, a new, you mentioned there's a class of players who are typically providing financing for new developments who are no longer doing that. It's sort of opening up a window of opportunity for some of the newer players. Do you think this is something that's going to stick? Might we see a new wave of lenders coming into this market who might have a a foothold of uh, opportunity here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, let's look at it this way. If you look at the big box banks, you know, the Wells, the Chase, the Cities, I'm not naming names. 
Um, but these are the banks that hold most of the loans that are in forbearance. You know, so they have their own issues and they have all these people that are not making their mortgage payments. Um, they're not really, they don't want to take the risk anymore. So they're pulling out of this marketplace. And yeah, absolutely, these portfolio lenders are going to come in and they will be, I believe, the, the lenders of choice for new development over the course of the next couple of years until the markets stabilize again. Um, but people need to realize that these portfolio lenders don't have as many people in forbearance because um, they're not Fannie Freddie lenders. They don't have tons of conforming loans. Um, and their rates in general tend to be slightly higher than some of the big box banks. Um, so therefore they have less, fewer troubled loans. They're willing to make more loans, be more aggressive, but at a certain price. But, you know, especially if we think that prices are coming down and if you have a buyer who's going to buy a property at an amazing price, 10% below, 20% below what the original asking was, you're not going to see that price level again in a couple of years when the markets and the economy stabilizes. So it's best to take advantage of that purchase price today and take whatever mortgage you can get. You can always refinance your mortgage. You can't redo the purchase price. What, 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 what a fantastic question, John. Thank you so much for, for adding that in. Melissa, you know, I, 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 my brain was hungry when I came into this. It is now extremely satisfied. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to ask one last final question. Um, most of my audience is professional agents who, who use this resource, this show, to um, pass on nuggets of information to their clients. So specifically for buyer clients, right? Um, we're coming out. The gates are opening in a couple of days. What would you tell those agents to convey to their buyers to prepare them for the lending environment that they're about to potentially bid into? So I would say that obviously we all know that we're in unprecedented times, how I hate that expression. Um, but that the world, the lending world today is very different than it was three months ago. So if you had a buyer who was in the marketplace last fall and this winter, even at the beginning of March, and if let's say they were pre-approved, they need to go back and they need to revisit their lender. They need to get themselves reapproved and they need to understand mortgages in June 2020 because they're very different than what mortgages were in February or March of 2020. Right. Awesome stuff. Melissa Cohn, thank you so much from Family First Funding. I truly appreciate you taking the time out to um, pass some of this wisdom on to our, for, to our listeners. Thank Thanks you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, John. Yeah. Thanks, Noah. Thank you. Anytime. This is Noah and John. We are from Urban Digs. We're talking Manhattan and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.